Good morning, beloved. All right, well, this morning um, we'll conclude our study in Daniel. We have to cover chapters 11 and 12 this morning. I'm not going to read it. It would take over 10 minutes to do that, so we're going to work our way through. I've been praying that I'll be able to finish this today because this is our last day before our break. So as you listen, you can pray that we'll finish. And I, and I trust it will be helpful. Um, I hope. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this Lord's Day morning. Help us to see. Help us to understand. Bless your people um, as they prepare to come in this morning for the worship service. In Christ's name, amen. Chapters 10 through 12, once again, are a single unit. Uh, of the last vision given to Daniel. Chapter 10 is the introduction and Daniel's preparation to receive the vision. Chapter 11 is the vision itself. And then chapter 12 is the conclusion to the vision, all of which, beloved, relate to the latter days. The latter days, that is the times leading up to and into Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 14, look at that if you would. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So again, latter days is a technical term in the Old Testament for times of Messiah. From the Old Testament perspective, last days, the last days, looked forward to the messianic era. That is the arrival of Christ. Back in chapter 2 and verse 28, Daniel, you remember, interpreted the king's dream as regarding things taking place and leading up to the latter days. And that is, once again, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Concerning a Joel prophecy that said, in the latter days I will pour out my spirit, Peter, when he preached at Pentecost, he said, this, what's happening here, is that. The latter days. So from our perspective, beloved, these things have been fulfilled. Christ has come. He's established his kingdom. He is the one shown to Daniel and sended to the ancient of days to receive dominion, glory, and the kingdom. Showing us also, in chapter 12, as we'll see, hopefully we'll get there, um, the victorious fruit and eternal effects of Messiah's mission. Okay, now, chapter 10, remember, we, we saw that there's conflicts that are being prophesied. Chapter 10, verse 1, and the vantage point of those conflicts, that is, impending warfare, were shown to us from above. Verse 13, chapter 10, we see the demonic opposition with regard to the prince of Persia who withstood Gabriel. And again, this is apocalyptic styled writing that reminds us of the book of Revelation. When something is described on earth, something's being described, all of a sudden the veil is pulled back and we're shown something in the heavenlies. And that's what we, we saw there in chapter 10. 
In chapter 11, the vantage point of ensuing history is shown now from the ground and the conflict that will take place yet future to Daniel at this point in time, um, uh, conflict between kings of the north and kings of the south. Okay, North and south of what? The beautiful land. That is the glorious land. Chapter 8, verse 9, we see that term. We see it here in verse 6 of chapter 11 and again in verse 41, where, that is the glorious land, where the promises of God's covenant were consecrated, where his Shekinah presence was made known. It is there, in that glorious land, that conflicts await the people of Israel. And so that they will not grow faint, he provides Daniel with visions to fortify the people. That is, the people who will return from exile and their descendants as they wait for Messiah. They're going to undergo many trials and many sufferings, wars and persecutions, so this vision serves to fortify them when the time comes. What time? Time of the latter days. Time's up to Messiah. It's not necessarily them fighting the wars, but what we see in the vision is that they will live in a region troubled by war. Okay, notice chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, Daniel's visitor, we believe to be Gabriel, God's messenger, begins to reveal a number of things about future kings, that is the future kings of Persia. So this angel was God's agent to confirm, notice, King Darius in his office and to strengthen him, verse 1. That's, that was one of his missions, verse 1. And then verse 2 tells us that four subsequent kings are yet to come. And the fourth, with great riches. Now that we know to be King Xerxes from the book of Esther, um, who built up a great army. He built up a, a fleet of ships to attack Macedonia, that is, Greece, but he failed. He failed. Which begins the downfall of Persia and the rise of Greece. And Alexander the Great, verse 3. Now, as soon as he that is, Alexander the Great, stands and rules with great dominion, we read that he falls, he dies. Verse 4, his kingdom is divided. Now remember, okay, verse 3 here is a reference to the goat of chapter 8. So we're revisiting ground here that we've already covered. And remember, his kingdom will be uprooted and divided. The broken horn of Daniel chapter 8, verse 22, who is Alexander the Great, his kingdom will be divvied up, but not amongst his posterity. Notice verse 4. It will be divided up among his generals, and it will create two dynasties, one in the north, one in the south. The king of the south is Ptolemy I, and this is just history, I'm, I'm just citing some history here. If you want to get all these nations and all these kings, you, any good Daniel commentary will carry these, all of this history that we're going to cover in about three minutes. 
So you're going to have to do your own homework if you want to see. But the, the king of the south is Ptolemy I, and then one of his best generals was a man by the name of Seleucus who left Egypt, went to Babylon, and, so, and soon thereafter claimed the title king. And this then provi- <clears throat> this proved to be conflict that would come between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic dynasties. The north, the Syria, south, Egypt. And then verses 5 to 24 are prophecies concerning the wars between these two divisions of Alexander's divided kingdom. That's what all this covers. So it covers their conflicts and and the, the actions that had a direct impact on the Jews who were in the beautiful land. They were sandwiched in between these dynasties and all of these wars that took place. And it covers centuries. Verses 5 to 20 cover centuries of wars, peace treaties, through arranged royal marriages. You see something of that there in verse 6. All of this is being foretold to Daniel. Many years yet to come. So we have details of history, again, that can be found in any good, decent, scholarly um, commentary on the book of Daniel. Again, we don't have time. So let's jump down because ultimately from verse 21 all the way down to verse 35 is a focus on one of those kings who come out of that divvied up dynasty of Alexander the Great. In this one from Syria, a man named Antiochus IV Um, who referred to himself as Epiphanes, the illustrious one. Notice, in his place, that is Seleucus IV, in his place, verse 21, shall arise a despicable person to whom royal majesty has not been given. That is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Now, we encountered him already in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, and again in verses 23 to 25. Chapter 8, an evil man, a great persecutor of the Jews. Now this account, chapter 11, is just further information revealed concerning his rule. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, which again is yet future to Daniel, not to us. This is not future to us. This is past to us. Verses 21 to 24 talk about his rise to power. He was a very cunning man. He attained the throne. Notice verse 21 through flattery and intrigue. He overcomes Egypt, that is the kingdom to the south, in his first campaign, verses 22 to 27. His first campaign, he conquers the kingdom of the south. And by the way, the word covenant there in verse 22 Right? He makes a covenant. That's to be understood in the sense of an alliance or a treaty being made between kings, which was very common. This is not some future covenant made by the Antichrist in the future. Sigh. Frustration. Okay, verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder. He returns from the south with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Okay, that is, on his way back to the north, he plundered Jerusalem and he persecuted the people. Now remember what his desire was. His desire, that is the desire of Antiochus Epiphanes, was to Hellenize all peoples. That was to make them Greek including the Jews, to Hellenize 
all peoples of all lands. Now, notice verse 29. In his next Egyptian campaign, notice, it did not go as it did the first time, for ships of Ketim shall come against him. Okay, which refers to the Romans. At this point in time, the Romans are growing strong in the eastern Mediterranean. This is actually a fulfillment of Numbers 24-24, if you want to look at that later. So who is this that's growing strong? The fourth kingdom in the vision given to Daniel, or the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets. They are beginning to grow strong as Greece... Right? And Alexander the Great falls, the, the Great, he falls, and his kingdom is divided up. Kings of the north, kings of the south. Rome is, Rome is starting to flex her muscles. Verse 30 Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant, and he will take action. So, having failed in this expedition, by Roman interference, he's outraged. On his way back to Syria, he vents his anger and his malice on the people of Israel. The holy covenant, that is their obedience to God's law. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. What does he mean by that? Well, history tells us that at that time there were many apostate defectors. Many people from Israel apostatized. They betrayed Israel and actually helped in the evil plots of Antiochus against their own people. And they were honored for it. Verse 31. He will do away with regular sacrifices. They will set up the abomination of desolation. And he, of course, is the one who performed that. Uh, wicked act, the abomination that desecrates um, the temple. Um, I read of some of the gross atrocities recorded by the historian Josephus when we were in Daniel 8. So we're not going to cover that ground again. Notice verse 32. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Many Jews broke covenant. They teamed up with the evils of Antiochus. They were corrupted by flattery and promised great riches. They were sellouts. He flattered many. Verse 32b, but, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. There is no neutrality when it comes to persecution. There is no middle ground with persecution like this. People who know their God refuse to bow. They refuse to bow. Verse 33. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. This is a prediction of the rise of the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus, along with others who would oppose his evil takeover. And this is, uh, would be referring to Ju Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, Judas Maccabeus, who rallied and began a resistance. Prophesied right here, verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall 
in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Okay? Again, we see that this persecution is ultimately in God's hand. He's sovereign. And it will have a winnowing effect to refine, to purge, to, to purify the truly faithful among Israel at that time. Until the end time, that is a fixed, appointed time, an appointed time that God allows his people to undergo severe, severe trials and persecutions. And eventually, after that temple was sacked, and the abomination of desolation was where it should not, where it ought not to be, under Antiochus Epiphanes, that is the fourth, under the Maccabean revolt, about 165 B.C., the temple was rededicated, and that's what commenced the Feast of Lights and uh, what we know today as Hanukkah. With me? Okay, verse 36, there's a shift. Verses 35, there's a transition. In verse 36, there's a shift, and this is a figure who's now central to the rest of the vision. This figure simply is identified as the king. It's not a king either of, either of the northern or southern kingdom, notice, as we'll read on. He's not from the north, he's not from the south, as it has been up to this point. Now, many commentators are divided about who this king is. Um, during the time of the Reformation, they believed it was the pope. Others believe it's the Antichrist who arises at the end of history. Your dispensational premillennialists teach, will teach that, that it's a future, yet future to us. Um, Antichrist. But I believe the most sensible interpretation of this, beloved, that is of verses 36 to 45, describe, describe the Rome of the Caesars. Rome of the Caesars. John Calvin taught that it was indeed the Roman Empire that's being described here. Um, I agree. I agree 100%, but yet we can't be 100% dogmatic. It is a difficult passage. But I believe if we're going to maintain the orders of nations described in the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar and the, the, the answers therefore uh, thereof given to Daniel by God himself, um, this is Daniel tracing the world empires from captivity to time of Messiah, latter days. That makes sense. It's a strong, this is a very strong and lucid description of the Caesars. That horn, the horn described back in chapter 7, the fourth beast. Again, there's four kingdoms, not five. So if there's four kingdoms, this has to be up to the time of Messiah, not some fifth kingdom yet to come as taught in premillennial dispensationalism. Verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. Now, one thing certain about the Caesars, they were very contemptuous of the gods of their day. Why? Because they declared to be deity. They were God. And especially blasphemous they were of the one true God. So they held all gods in contempt. Scorned, ridiculed by the Caesars. Remember back in chapter 7 and verse 25. He, 
we believe to be the office of Caesars, notice, will speak out against the Most High. Chapter 7, verse 25. Julius Caesar, his adopted son, Octavian, remember he changed his name to Augustus Caesar, the August one, the grand and majestic one, who sent out heralds to the four corners of the kingdom of the empire, declaring there is no name except Augustus by which men can be saved. He said that before Peter declared that. Peter took it and flipped it. There's no name but Jesus. He had coins minted, referring to himself as the son of God. Lord and savior of men. Is that blasphemy of the God of gods? Sure is. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. That is, God has decreed this judgment, their indignation. He's decreed it. Verse 37, he will show no regard, this king will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Above them all. He, that is the office of Caesars, we believe this to be. Again, a prophecy of that fourth kingdom. Now, this desire for women, it doesn't have, does not have to do with physical interest um, or marriage. I know that some teach that there's a future antichrist and you know, he'll be a homosexual. I don't believe it refers to that. This has to do with the goddesses of their fathers. The gods and goddesses of the day will not be regarded by these kings or this king that is the office of Caesar because they are God. Verse 38, but instead... He will honor a God of fortress, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. That is, we honor the God of power, Rome. Rome. Military might. We bow at the shrine of force. That's the idea, I believe, is being conveyed here. They will follow the rule and the doctrine that whoever has the power makes the policy. Verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Now, though the Caesars did not um, bow to the false gods of the day, um, they showed scorn and ridicule um, towards them. They did, however, refer to, to Jupiter um, as one to whom they would give honor. And this was not a god of their fathers. This is not a god their fathers worshipped. This is the Roman na name for the Greek god, Zeus. Which makes much more sense. Men who worship themselves and force. The fourth kingdom. Verse 40. He will fight those from the north and south. Verse 41. He will enter into the beautiful land and take control. This is another king yet future to the Persian Empire, to the Grecian Empire, the fourth kingdom. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. 
Historically, the Romans did not bother themselves with those who lived on the fringes of the glorious land, that is the beautiful land, those who dwelt out in the rocks and the caves bordering the great desert. They had no time for that. So their judgment didn't fall upon them. Verse 41, they conquered Egypt. Verse 44, notice, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb them. Fact of the matter is, this describes the difficulties that the Romans had with the Parthians in the northeast. If you remember in our study of the book of Revelation, I pointed this out. They were great warriors, and Rome feared an invasion of the Parthians. These, these, these fellows were master warriors. They had mastered the craft of riding forward on horses, shooting arrows backwards. And it's reported that two legions of Roman soldiers fell from a shower of arrows from the Parthians. It's amazing. So... They did, that is Rome, eventually stop them, but they never conquered them. They never conquered them. So there were rumors of disturbance for the Roman Empire from the northeast. And, notice, he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas, that is the Caspian and the Mediterranean. From your view, it would be like this. Mediterranean led to the Western world, and uh, the, the other sea, which uh, borders uh, what it is, Iran today, was the Caspian Sea. He will pitch his royal tents, pavilion between the seas of the beauty, holy, beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end. Eventually, no one will help him. All these empires will fall, just as the Lord showed to Nebuchadnezzar. So between the Caspian and the Mediterranean, Judea, there they are, right in the middle, sandwiched in between, and we, we proceed then into chapter 12. Now, there were no chapter breaks in the original. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, at that time, what time? We believe it to be the fourth kingdom, not some future fifth kingdom. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, we read that language elsewhere in Scripture, right? That, that's common language used during the exodus and the judgment that would fall upon Egypt. We see that language in Ezekiel 5, verse 9, and we hear those words from our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Mark 13, verse 19. Jesus said this, For those days, those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Okay, what days? What days does Jesus refer to if we back up in Mark's account, verse 14, Mark 13, when you see the abomination of desolation, which Matthew says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. What reader? The reader of that day. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, described by Daniel, 
described by Daniel, was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Amen? Yes, fact. In the second century BC, and yet Jesus speaks as though that was a mere foreshadowing of an even greater conflict that would occur during the time of the last kingdom, the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. Antiochus foreshadows what I'm telling you fellas about, says Jesus. To whom was he speaking? His disciples who inquired, Lord, what about this temple? What about these buildings? Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And when you see the abomination, a desolation set up where it should not be, that's a sign, get out of town. Before that, there'll be wars. Before that, there'll be rumors of wars. But the time is not yet. When you see this and this, run for the hills. In other words, if you think Antiochus was bad, this one, this time, will be worse. Exalting and magnifying himself uh, over the most high. So Jesus called his disciples to be prepared because those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Verse 20, Mark 13. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And what a, bear, what a beautiful parallel that is with what Daniel calls in chapter 12, those whose names are written in the book. That is the book of life, the book of the living, the book of those who survived these great tribulations. But furthermore, notice Daniel tells us, verse 2, that a great number of the Lord's people who have lost their lives, they've, they've lost it by way of tribulation, great tribulation, great conflict, chapter 10, verse 1. It's all the same vision. Will be resurrected. Look at his word. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Resurrection language that closely follows the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Day of the resurrection. Guaranteed for the faithful. So this shows us, friends, this shows us that the deliverance of God's elect is more than a mere promised escape from the calamities that fell upon the Jews. It's much more than that. Much more than the calamity that fell upon the Jews in Antiochus' time, much more than fell upon the people of God in Rome's time, the Caesar's time. This is more than a rescue from Roman armies. This is more than a rescue of some secret rapture invented by men. This is rescue and ultimate deliverance from judgment that is promised. The goal of hope for the believer is not mere heaven, right? When you die, and say you die today, you go to heaven. Our ultimate hope is not that. Our ultimate goal and hope is the resurrection. Our ultimate goal and hope is glorification in glorified bodies like that of our Lord dwelling with him in a resurrected universe. 
Verse four, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. What time must we conclude? The latter days. And I, again, I believe this needs to be understood in the same way as that phrase, latter days. The era of Messiah. All of the Old Testament was preparatory, amen? All of it, moving towards this, to, to that end, this end, to Christ. Notice, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. That's a hard phrase. Not sure if it's meant positively or negatively in that many will increase by way of sound teaching or taught in the negative that people will wander in search of truth and not find it. It's hard to, to distinguish. You know Amos 8, remember that prophecy? Um, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will, I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread and thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord, and the people will stagger from sea to sea. Could be that. Why? Because they've, they've rejected the revelation of God. They've rejected it. Verses 5 to 7, the one that, that Gabriel, remember, spoke, spoke to who was dressed in fine linen. Who was that? Dressed in fine linen, who was that? Words, Jesus, the pre-incarnate, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. We see similar descriptions that we read last week in the book of Revelation. So Gabriel speaks with who we believe is the pre-incarnate Christ. We saw that back in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. So the vision just spoken of, he's concerned. He doesn't understand, which means angels are, are limited in knowledge. Only God is omniscient, not angels. So he asks, how long? And notice, the man dressed in linen, who we believe is the son of God, raised his hand and swore, verse seven. How long is, how long, how long? Notice, for a time, times, and half a time, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. We saw that phrase back in chapter 7 also, verse 25. When little horn, that is the Caesars, the office of Caesar, who persecute the saints, they're going to suffer for how long? Chapter 7, three and a half years. And again, dispensationalists take that and they shoot it off to the future, yet future to us is a future great tribulation they teach will occur. This simply refers to a set period of time set by God, established by God, which is also a limited period of time. Three and a half is a broken seven. Seven is completeness, fullness. Three and a half is half that. The time of great difficulty when the wicked are allowed to triumph over God's people. Verse eight, as for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? So in other words, not giving literal dates, but only an indication of what its end will be, verse 11, from the time that the regular burnt offering, okay, don't miss this language because we looked at this in the 70th week. 
from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. We saw that again in the 70th week. Messiah was cut off. Amen? Messiah's cut off. After his death, the city and sanctuary were destroyed, remember, in the middle of the week. In the middle of the week. Puts an end to sacrifice. Remember the chart I gave you? So, the beginning of that 70th week is when Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel in his baptism, the anointed one. He's the anointed one. The beginning of the 70th week was his baptism representing himself to the covenant people of God. His ministry, three and a half years. Jesus' ministry, three and a half years. At his death, his death caused the whole Old Testament sacrificial system to what? To end. Curtain of the temple torn from the top to the bottom. So from the time Messiah takes away sacrifice to the time of abomination, which is set up here, brings about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That brings about the end. With the coming of Christ and to 70 AD is a period of transition. The coming of Christ to 70 AD is a period of transition. Christ holding out his hand to Israel from AD 30 to AD 70, they refused and God buried the whole system forever. Never to be reinstituted. He buried it. Christ buried it. Judgment came from above. So the Old Testament order is over, done with, fulfilled. The latter days have, has arrived. The end context has come. The termination of these things has come and will never be reestablished. There's no need to ever reestablish that which served as shadows and types. He's come. He's conquered. He's done away with the old system, the latter days. Verse 11, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end. Believe that to be symbolic language. People have drawn out maps and charts and they've done mathematic you know, analogies and such. But this, this is for sure. If we're thinking about symbolism here, which is prevalent in apocalyptic literature, there are at least three long sets of days mentioned in the book of Daniel. Chapter 8 and verse 14, there's 1,150 days. 1,150 days. You, you divide in half the morning and evening sacrifices Daniel was talking about. You have 1,150 days mentioned there. Then you have 1,290 days mentioned here, and then 1,335 days mentioned. The point, I think it's simple. You must be prepared, Daniel. You and your people must be prepared to pers persevere a long time. And then a little longer. And then a little longer. Persevere. Jesus taught that truth 
in his parable in Matthew 24, verses 24 to 51, that no one knows the day or hour. Don't let your guard down when you're waiting for the king. Persevere. 1150, 1290, 1335. I believe it's just symbolic. In other words, you know what? God does not cater. God does not cater to human curiosity. He gives us general prophecies. And these guys that labor to dice up and divvy out particular specific minute, detailed nuances of what God doesn't provide is folly. It's folly. People in our gay get caught up with just that. That's how you contort the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week has come. We're in it. We're in the second half of the 70th week is what we teach. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place, Daniel, at the end of the days. He says, go your way to the end. You will enter into rest. You will rise again on the day of the resurrection. And you, Daniel, you will receive your reward and you will stand, you will stand in your allotted place when the time comes my faithful man of God. That's what we believe Daniel teaches. <laughs> now look, if you came up with dispensational premillennialism, and I told you I tried to adopt that. I didn't come up with it. I tried to adopt it. I thought it sounded romantic. I thought it sounded, you know, it's like just a great movie script. I really tried to adopt it. But when you go to the text, can't support it. Some of my favorite teachers in the world who teach it, they're the most sound, just clear teachers. When it comes to the 70th week and a secret rapture, they, they get foggy. <laughs> they get foggy. So if, you're, if you refuse to let go of a dispensational premillennial view, I say to you, that's okay. That is okay. And we've said that from the beginning of anyone who becomes a member here, as long as you don't fight against what we teach. If you're not willing to let go of it, I do encourage very diligent study of the matter. Very diligent study. And I think you'll conclude otherwise. So this book is written, or I should say the book of Revelation is written much like the book of Daniel, and it's simply this. The book of Revelation, just like the book of Daniel, is to encourage God's people how to live in a hostile world amidst the struggle that will continue with opposition from Daniel's day to the end of the old covenant. And in the book of Revelation, that conflict continues until Christ comes again. And we're encouraged to do the same, persevere. 1150, 1290, 1355, and a little bit longer. Keep persevering, because God has won the war. Conquered through Jesus Christ, our King. And he who overcomes, Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes 
will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So may this become a reality in our lives by grace through the Holy Spirit to persevere as the people in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, were, were fortified by these visions to persevere. We're given the book of Revelation in the, 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 the king who has come and the judgments through providence that we see happening in our time and even yet future are coming out of the scroll that was not only opened by the one who's worthy, the lion who is the lamb, he's also implementing the content within the scroll. Temporal signs of judgment leading to ultimate judgment, the end. And he says, those who overcome will be clothed in white garments. I think that's the simple message. Well, not simple. I think Daniel is much simpler than what men um, have been teaching the last couple hundred years, to be quite frank. Okay? And again, Daniel 11 can't be 100% you know, dogmatic about it, um, but I, I don't think it's something in the far future. We finished. And you all look just super enlightened. And it's like everything is cleared up now. <laughs> it's not always supposed to be perfectly clear anyhow. Daniel, I was perplexed, I didn't understand. Study to show thyself approved, and it gets clearer and clearer, I think. Amen? Lord, thank you for our time. I, I do pray that this will have some sanctifying effect upon each one of us. Lord, help us to understand those things that aren't so clear. Um, help us to understand um, as far as we ought for your glory and the good of your people. For Christ's sake, amen.